Hey friends, uh, I'm Ryan. If we haven't met, I would love the chance to get to meet you when we're on the other side of this pandemic. But I'm excited today to get to start a three-week journey learning through the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 together. Before we dive into that, I just want to start with a story. Uh, early on in my marriage and my parenting of my children, we were at a point where our children were young. And when you have young children, we had two daughters at that time, uh, it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of work and you just feel like you're going to go crazy sometime. And I remember coming up uh, in the middle of that season where life is just super intense and parenting is intense. I remember coming up on a season where it was our anniversary and I was so excited because it's that time you look forward to and as an adult where you know at least for your anniversary maybe you can get away, maybe you can get a babysitter, maybe you can get to spend some just good quality time being adult human beings together with the one that you love. So my wife and I were so excited about this time to get away for this anniversary date and I tend to build things up in my head pretty big. Uh, I'm kind of an idealist in that way. And so we were making all the preparations and I found out that we were, we were about ready to go on our date. And I found out that we only had childcare reserved for two hours. Now on one hand, two hours sounds pretty great just to get that time away. But for me, I was obsessed about the idea that this is our anniversary, right? This isn't just some normal date. This has to be like super full of love and super full of conversation and super full of relationship and all these like big ideals, that I, romantic ideals that I had going on for me. And so I told my wife, Robin, there is no way that we can reasonably celebrate an anniversary with only two hours together, right? This is our chance. If, if we're going to celebrate the love that we have for each other, we have to make sure that it is this big grand thing and that's certainly gonna take longer than two hours. We at least have to have dinner and a movie and that's gonna take three, right? Uh, so we were making all these preparations and Robin was on the other side where she was a little concerned. She was carrying concerns of her own, concerns for our children, concerns for how young they were and how they do with time away. And she was expressing those. But in my youthful ignorance, I wasn't having much of that. And uh, I kept pushing back and pushing back. No, if we're going to have this love for each other that we celebrate, we have to do it in this big grand way. Eventually, my wife, in her great patience and kindness, relented and said, okay, we'll have an expanded time. But I could tell that the argument that we'd had had its cost, right? That even in the end, though I may have won the argument, by the way that I saw my wife's demeanor crushed a little bit, I realized that even though I had won, I'd lost. Maybe that's something you relate to. Let's put a pin in that and we'll come back to that in a little bit. Uh, but first, I want to talk about 1 Corinthians 13, right? As we talk about this book, uh, this chapter of this book, if you've heard 1 Corinthians 13 before, you know it probably as the love chapter. And people love it. It's in about every other wedding, if not every wedding that you've attended over the last couple years, you see this reading of 1 Corinthians 13. And in fact, not only is it this romantic text that seems to pop up in most weddings. Uh, growing up in the church, it was kind of this thing that only came up in weddings for me, right? We didn't even really talk about it outside of the context of celebrating people getting married. But interestingly, contrary to its romantic wedding reputation, 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, is actually about working through conflict, which I guess makes it actually kind of perfect for weddings. 
But if we're going to understand the nature of this conflict that the people were going through in 1 Corinthians 13, let's first take a step back and look at the background of what was going on and why this chapter that's known as the love chapter is really about conflict. So backing up, we come across the people in the early first century, right? This is right after the life of Jesus. This is right after uh, his life and his death and his resurrection and all the miracles that were going on during that time. And then Jesus ascending uh, to be at the right hand of the Father. At the conclusion of Jesus's life, we see his apostles, uh, which go out and share this message of Jesus to all the world. They're sharing the message that God is available for everyone and that God is not on the other side of the bunch of hoops that you have to jump through. That God is here, he is available, and he wants to be with everyone. And as a result of this message from the apostles that are going out all across the world, uh, these churches form in various cities all across the Greek and Roman world at the time. These communities became known as churches and are essentially, as we know them, communities of grace and peace. Well, one of these churches was in a Greek city known as Corinth. And if you think of Greek cities, you might think of the Greek culture, uh, you might think arts, you might think philosophy, and all of these things would be values that were carried by the society of the Greek people that was present in the city of Corinth. So this church springs up in Corinth, and later on, uh, the Apostle Paul, one of the apostles who's gone out and spread this message to these communities and helped start all these kind of church plant communities, uh, over time, the Apostle Paul tries to uh, continue to lead and influence these communities, often from a distance when he cannot visit them. And so Paul is writing letters to these communities, helping them to know what it looks like for them to keep moving forward. And so we come to this letter which is known as 1 Corinthians, or Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, right? Paul writes this letter to the people, and it's about three to four years after this church has been planted. And we find this church of just three and four years old just trying to figure out ways to move forward together, right? In that context, maybe it's something you can see how we at South Bend City Church can relate to, as we find ourselves in a similar uh, phase in our life cycle, just still relatively new as a church plan of three to four years. So in 1 Corinthians, the first letter that Paul writes to the Corinthians, uh, we read through the, the letter and we find out what the people were going through at that time. Because Paul was writing to them because he was trying to help them work through the things that they were going through. And Paul was writing to them, we see as we read through it, primarily because he was helping them work out what he was hearing about some conflicts and some divisions among the people. Already in this young church, these conflicts and divisions were starting to, to play themselves out in arguments that were separating the people from, the, from each other. And so Paul spends the entire letter of 1 Corinthians trying to help the people in this church, in this young church, find a way to work out these divisions. And before he gets to the end of the letter, and before he finishes with his big conclusion, we see 1 Corinthians chapter 13, as people know typically is a love chapter. And we see that right in there. But the interesting thing about this chapter, the interesting thing about 1 Corinthians 13, is it's kind of this capstone summary of what Paul has told them through the rest of the book. So it's interesting that if you look at 1 Corinthians 13, you'll see there's kind of three main sections to that chapter. In each of those sections, 
uh, correspond to themes that Paul approaches throughout the rest of the letter to them. So he's summarizing the things he's already told them through the rest of the book. And if we look at the rest of the letter, we can better understand the themes that he's summarizing in 1 Corinthians 13. So as uh, mine and probably many of our college English teachers told us, you need to tell them something and then needed to tell them what you told them, right? So 1 Corinthians 13 is Paul's attempt to summarize and kind of put, uh, put a cherry on top of the things that he's already been coaching to the people in the church of Corinth. All right, with that background, let's dive in and look at the first section here. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 1 through 3. Paul says this. He says, And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding, resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. All right, so Paul is writing to them here uh, with some kind of warning and some caution and some wisdom that he's trying to get them to see. And right here in this passage, uh, just in these first three verses, we see that there's three categories that he's addressing, right? He says, hey, if we can think about speaking with the tongues of angels, right? This could be seen as um, having smooth words, having all the best words, having all the best thoughts or philosophical arguments. And he says, if I have the gifts of prophecy and the power to move mountains is a second category. And the third he's saying is if I give everything to the poor is a third category he's talking about. Now, these are not random or just poetic devices that he's throwing out here. They're not random ideas. The things he's listing here in his summary are actual preferences and priorities of differing factions within the church community. These things he's talking about here, the speaking with tongues of angels, the power and the prophecy, and the giving things to the poor, uh, these are actually the issues that they're arguing about. These are the issues that are dividing the people apart. And we can see this if we examine chapters 1 through 4 of the letter, where we find people that are arguing about what their priorities should be, and we find people arguing about who they should follow based on what those priorities are, right? Do they follow Paul, or do they follow Apollos, or do they follow Peter? And all of them have different opinions on that based on the things that are most important to them, based on their personal preferences and priorities. And all these preferences and priorities are dividing the people into factions or separate groups in their conflicts. We see this uh, summarized in 1 Corinthians 1, 22. He speaks very directly to the issues that are dividing them. He says, hey, in your community, the people with Jewish backgrounds demand miraculous signs, while the people with Greek backgrounds are find themselves looking for wisdom. Right, so right then, we're seeing how these things are playing out and separating them from each other. And we find this again in these first three verses. When he says, if I can speak with the tongues of men and angels, right there, he's talking about this appeal to the fine words or philosophy, or as it says in 122 there, the wisdom that appeals to the Greek people. When he goes on and says, if I have the gift of prophecy and if I have the power to move mountains, but these are big themes of power, right? Uh, asserting yourself with power in the world uh, as a result of the work of God in your life. 
And he already tells us that these are themes that were important to the people from Jewish backgrounds. And then Paul concludes in these three verses and he says, hey, even if you sacrifice everything and surrender your body to the flames, uh, that's also something that comes up here as kind of a third category. And we see that category actually representative of Paul's priorities and preferences himself, which you can read more about and we'll talk in a bit from chapter 4. So in all of these categories, representing all of these preferences and priorities of the people in the church that are dividing them, Paul's saying, if you gain these things, if you gain the things that you're wanting, if you gain all of the best uh, philosophical positions and words, if you gain all of the power in the world, or if you're ultimately able to sacrifice everything for others, if you gain all these things, if you win, but it means you haven't loved each other, so what? What then? What is it to you if you're able to win the argument but don't love each other? Well, what he concludes is that if you win and have the most beautiful words, words in the world but don't have love, you're like a clinging gong. Basically, your words are accomplishing nothing but just being sound that fills the air and annoys people. And if you have all the power in the world but don't have love, he, he says you are nothing. And if you're able to sacrifice everything, he says you gain nothing if you don't have love. For what purpose are you doing it if it's not accomplishing anything without love? Paul's telling us that if we haven't loved each other well, when it comes to our preferences and our priorities, if we haven't loved each other well, then just like my anniversary failure from Robin from years ago, even when we win, we lose. This is a warning from Paul that we might find ourselves fighting so hard for our preferences and our priorities that even when we find ourselves winning the battle, we see ourselves losing the war. And suddenly our community of grace and peace feels divided with allies and oppositions. People that are with us in our preferences and priorities and then people that end up against us. We divide ourselves into tribes and factions where some in our community are in our safe circles and then some are outside of the walls that we put up. Well, what about us then? What does this have to do for us? What does it say to us here in 2020 in South Bend City Church? Now, obviously, we're not facing the same preferences and priorities that the people in Corinth are. We're not having arguments about whether uh, the best philosophy is best or the most power is best. But we do have our own preferences and priorities that can divide us. Right? We have our preferred worship or teaching styles. Right? The types of songs that we want to be listening to, the types of prayers that we prefer, the, the ways that we want people teaching us, uh, whether it's including ideas or stories and how all these things work together. We develop preferences and priorities around these things that sometimes elevate to the point where they begin to divide us. Our interpretations of scripture often become one of these things, right? Where as we're looking through the scripture and we're seeing the the, the wisdom that's in there, sometimes we elevate some things, emphasize some things, and de-emphasize other things, right? And these interpretations become something that are meaningful preferences and priorities to us, that when others don't carry the same preferences and priorities, we find ourselves quickly separated. 
or maybe it's spiritual practices that we feel should be featured more or less in our community. And so we're advocating for the practices that we like or the minimizing of practices that we don't really relate to so much. Real talk, what about uh, just even our preferences and priorities related to how we handle this pandemic as a community, right? As I talk to people, I find that we're all trying to figure out what the best path for us is. And uh, I've heard so many different positions along the way. And sometimes these preferences and priorities are at odds with each other and we find ourselves divided. And if we're honest, as we come into these church communities, we're all bringing our own political lenses to the mix as well. And sometimes those things divide us. A quick disclaimer though about this. As we read from Paul, as Paul's addressing kind of these main categories that they're dealing with, uh, the, the drawing to philosophy and wisdom, the drawing to, to power and to miracles, and, and even Paul's own drawing towards self-sacrifice. As Paul's discussing these things, he's not saying that those are bad things. Paul's not trying to say that people are on the wrong track, that the things that they're caring about are evil things or immoral things or improper things. What Paul is saying is that these things may actually be well and good preferences and priorities, but just that they're worthless or worse, they're problematic if they take too high a priority that they overshadow our love for one another and begin to divide us. So Paul's reminder from this is to love one another, to love each other and to make that our highest priority. Now, when he's talking about loving one another here, he's not talking simply about positive feelings, right? Because I think we can get caught up in that kind of view that we, we want to come to church and just have these uh, kind of surfacey positive feelings for each other. When Paul's encouraging us to make it a priority to love one another, he's not simply talking about niceness or attempted niceness towards one another. Because it's easy to fall into a niceness that we extend to one another that still is far from the love that Paul intends and calls us to have for one another. And some that times that niceness becomes a trap to make us feel like we're fulfilling these obligations to love one another when really we still find ourselves divided. We too often can greet each other with smiling faces but cold or distant hearts. What Paul is talking about is sacrificial love for one another. And we see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. In this section in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, Paul is talking about the way that he attempts to love them in the church community, the way he intends to see his life lived in a way that prioritizes others over himself. In verses 10 through 13, it says this, Paul is writing, he says, we, talking about the apostles, the people caring for them, we are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. You are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, we are dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry and are thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. 
Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse or trash of the world. So when Paul's talking about this call for us to prioritize loving one another over our other preferences and priorities, he's talking about sacrificial love. A sacrificial love that takes seriously the everyone and icon status of each other. I love from several weeks ago when Paul and Stephanie Steele were sharing with us on the conversation of race in our Instagram Live and Facebook Live sessions. I love what Stephanie said at one point. She said that love must have action behind it. It's not just the superficial niceness, but love that has sacrificial action behind it. And she said that love sometimes means protest, right? That if we're loving others, that sometimes we act boldly and sacrificially on behalf of others. So true love that brings us together, Paul would say, is not superficial positivity. It's not the appearance of niceness, but the sacrificial movement towards others for their good, not ours. So once again, what does this mean for us? Well, first, the question I would have is, have you experienced conflict or even division in what aims to be a community of grace and peace, whether this one or another experience? Because I feel that many of us have from the stories I hear. On the other side of that, the question would be, have there ever been ways that your preferences and priorities may have contributed to that experience for others of feeling separated, divided, or held outside? And in this question, I want to note that it, it's easy to cheer on the point of the sermon, right? It's easy to cheer on this idea that our preferences and priorities sometimes get in the way of unity because we often feel pushed aside from others. And it's easy to say, yeah, uh, there's definitely people out there that their preferences and priorities are more important than them than their priority to love. And those people need to get that figured out. But that those people always has somebody behind it, right? And oftentimes, that somebody might be us. So are we able to take a look in the mirror and ask God to reveal in hearts, our hearts ways in which our preferences and priorities might be causing problems for others if we're not first and foremost looking at them with sacrificial love? And as we pause and think about that, I wonder what a church would look like if it was really able to take this seriously, this call to love each other. Not a church that seeks to remove our preferences and priorities because that is who we are. We bring those things to the table naturally as a result of our experience, as a result of our culture, as a result of our community. We should be bringing ourselves to the table but we should also make sure that those things don't overtake our responsibility to sacrificially love one another. As we seek to ensure that everyone an icon is not just a mantra that we say, but it is matched by the experience of everyone in our community. 
may we carry that challenge this week as we seek to love one another well. I want to leave you with the words of Jesus that Jesus left to his followers found in John 13, 35. He said, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. I love you, friends. Thanks for this conversation today. I look forward to more in the future. Grace and peace.